you got your Bible, go to Judges chapter 14. I got ahead of myself. Judges chapter 14. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off two weeks ago in the story of Samson. And if you weren't here, I'm going to catch you up. And if you were here, I'm going to clarify something as we get going. When we started the story of Samson in chapter 13, I said we're going to take two weeks to look at the life of Samson. It's the the largest, most encompassing story in the book of Judges. And we spent one week looking at his birth story, how Samson came onto the scene. And we're going to spend a second week looking at the rest of his life. Well, here's the thing. We're going to do that in two weeks too. Because the more I thought about it, the more I started to deal with it, the reality of it is, and we've learned this throughout the book of Judges, that lots of us have ideas about some of these characters. We've heard bits and pieces of their stories, especially this guy, Samson. But very few of us have ever actually intimately read the story. Have ever spent any time in the book of Judges actually reading the stories, seeing how they fit together, and not just hearing about this man doing these wild exploits. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to, by the grace of God, work our way rather swiftly through the story of Samson. But here's what I want us to do. As we work our way through the story of Samson, what I want us to see, what I trust God will do as we do that, is he will show us that first and foremost, more than this story being about Samson, this story puts on display for us the faithfulness of God to his promises and the faithfulness of God to his people, even when his people can't be faithful to him. More than anything, what I want you to see this morning as we go through it is the faithfulness of God to his word. Next week, we'll come back and we'll swim around in more of the details about this man, Samson, and some of the questions that come up with him. But this morning, I just want you to catch the story. And more than that, I want you to catch the picture and the sound of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God that's put on display and works itself out here happens on the stage of Israel's ultimate unfaithfulness to him. See, last two weeks ago when we saw the birth of Samson, if you remember that, if you were with us at all, the angel of the Lord came to his mom and said, you're going to give birth to a son. And this son that you're going to give birth to is going to begin to deliver my people from the oppression of the Philistines. And as we took some time to look at that, what we saw is that as opposed to any other cycle in the life of God's people that we've seen in Judges, in this particular cycle, God's people don't want to be delivered. They've become completely comfortable in the oppression of the Philistines. Everything that Philistine culture holds out to them, everything that pleases their eyes, everything that delights their senses and desires, everything that the gods in the world of the Philistine culture holds out to the people of Israel, they want. They've become completely, as we saw two weeks ago, assimilated into the life of the Philistines, and they're not looking for God to deliver them. The faithfulness of God to his people, while his people have rejected him and have become unfaithful to him, he will not let them go. He's faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his people. And the story that we're gonna run through this morning is ultimately a story of his faithfulness to his people when they can't remain faithful to him. And the way that he is going to stir them back to action is through the ministry of this man, Samson. It's really a ministry of provocation. God is going to use Samson to begin a process of delivering them, but it's going to start by provoking Israel and provoking the Philistines. Samson, as one writer said, is a man who is exposed as as weak, but yet when his story ends, what we find is a weak man who's stronger than ever before. 
So this morning, as we go through his stories, listen, one, for the faithfulness of God to his promise and the faithfulness of God to his people, but listen as well for the faithfulness of God to work through his people, even as they're not faithful to him. Chapter 14, verse 1. This is the first bit of info we get about Samson after his birth story. The life of Samson from the time he's born to the point where we find ourselves now in chapter 14 as a young man, we don't have any information about So this is how the man Samson comes on the scene finally. Samson went down, verse one says, to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you could go and take for a wife, among all of our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. This is your introduction to Samson. Said very harshly, he's already a disappointment to his parents. Certainly, they don't expect him to grow up to marry a Philistine. Remember, the angel of the Lord told them, this is the one that you're going to set apart for his entire life. He's going to take a vow, put upon him a Nazarite vow, consecrating him to God because he would be the one that God would use to begin delivering his people from the oppression of the Philistines. His entire life to this point, his mom and dad had to wonder, knowing the stories of the judges past, how is he going to call God's people together? Is he going to lead an army against the Philistines? How is God going to use my son to begin the process of delivering his people from the Philistines? In no way do they ever expect Samson to go and marry one. But this is the thing that he wants. Like the rest of Israel, Samson is just showing us that God's people have a problem with their eyes. One writer said Samson is a completely sensual man in the most basic definition of the term. He's controlled by his senses. He reacts. He doesn't act or reflect. He sees, and so he takes. But what the writer of Judges tells us in verse four, that there's something mom and dad didn't know in all of this. God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Behind and underneath and above and around and through everything that we're learning about this man, Samson, God is at work. And so in chapter 14, we meet a man that we can already see is extremely flawed with a tremendous calling upon his life. And we find out that working through everything that we're going to see is the God of all creation, faithful to his promise, faithful to his people, even when his people can't be faithful to him. The rest of chapters 14 through 16, they contain everything that we know about Samson and you can break them up into basically seven primary episodes in his life. And here's the thing, lots of people know little bits about the different episodes. You're gonna hear one of them and go, oh, that was Samson, I heard that before. But I don't think many people see how they all fit together. One leads to the other. One flows out of the other and we get a picture of this man unfaithful to God, yet God faithful to him and his people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to go as quick as I can through it so that you can see the bigger picture and then hopefully by God's grace, the Holy Spirit will help you to see the faithfulness of God to his promise and to his people in it and how it all fits together. So first episode, chapter 14, starting in verse five, you get Samson and the lion. Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him roaring. Now, can you imagine that? 
You're going down a path on your way through a vineyard and a lion jumps out at you. Do you think you would be surprised? Fair, fair question. I'm not being funny. Fair question. Think you'd be surprised. Okay. The surprise that you're expecting Samson to have here is the same surprise you're supposed to have when you hear what happens next. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I've never torn a young goat. (laughs) Some of you may have torn a young goat. I don't know. I've been to Afghanistan. I've seen goats. I've never seen one torn like that. They used to tear goats. I don't know. But you're supposed to be surprised by what just happened there. Because as you'll see going through the story, contrary to what most of us grew up with, Samson did not possess the physique of a, of a Mr. Olympia. All of our books and storybooks, where we mostly learn about Samson, we get this super strong, muscular man that does all these great things. The whole point of the story is that you're going to be surprised by what happens because nothing on the outside would tell you that this is what this man can do. Just as surprised as Samson was that a lion jumped out on him, you're supposed to be surprised that he did what he did. But we know why it happened. So verse 8 says, after some days, he, he returned. Oh, I know. I, hold on, go back. We've got to fill the rest of the story. Sorry. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and though he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. And then he went down and he talked with the woman, because she was right in his eyes. And after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside, and he saw the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands, and he went on eating as he went, maybe whistling at the same time. I don't know. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some to eat, and they ate as well. But he didn't tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Why do you think he didn't tell them he scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion? Because it was dead. What was Samson not supposed to do as a Nazarite? Have contact with a dead body. Can you already get a sense of what Samson thinks or the purpose that God has? You're going to see it even more clearly. Second episode, chapter 14, verses 10 through 19. Samson the Riddler. These all go together. Watch this. Verse 10. His father went down to the woman. This is the woman that Samson wanted. And Samson prepared a feast there. Now remember, they're in Timnah. Timnah's Philistine land. It's a Philistine woman, and Samson goes down to where she is, and he prepares a feast there for the young men used to do this kind of thing. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you might remember, we talked about the Philistines. We said we even have archaeological and historical record now that they were some of the most sophisticated people on the earth in that time, not only in a military way, but in a a learning, in in a philosophical way, in an educational way, but they were also some of the most debased people on the face of the earth. Samson is preparing a Philistine drinking party. Is there a problem with that? It's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to drink anything from the vine. But he's setting up a party because he's going to get married. Look at verse 11. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Now, these are 30 Philistines. And Samson said to them, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't tell me what it is, then you'll give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. It's, it's Philistine drinking games. So he gave him a riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, in doing this, you're learning something else about Samson as well. Samson knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no way that these 30 Philistines are going to be able to answer that riddle. 
No one knows about what happened on that road aside from Samson and the Lord. So in giving them this riddle, knowing that there was no way they would ever be able to come up with the answer, Samson in a very macho way is trying to demonstrate his superiority to these other 30 men at the party because as soon as they can't give him the answer after seven days, he not only gets to demonstrate to them his intellectual superiority by coming up with this riddle, but in giving them the answer, he also gets to tell them about what happened on the road to the vineyards, doesn't he? He gets to tell them about his extraordinary strength, strength by which they probably can't replicate. So he gives them this riddle. But they were smart. They pressed his wife. Verse 15, on the fourth day of the feast, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. That's who he's playing with. So verse 17, she wept before him for seven days and the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. So Samson's wife pesters him long enough until he tells her the answer to the riddle. And she goes and tells her people who were the 30 people he put the riddle to. And Samson's response to them when they came and gave him the answer was less than sporting. Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. I'm not going to touch that. (laughs) You can all translate that for yourself. Verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Quite literally, Samson was a hot mess. Vengeful, angry, impulsive, arrogant. Rather than paying his debt that he owed because they solved his riddle, he goes and kills 30 of their own people, takes the clothes off their backs and gives them to these men. That's Samson. But that leads to the third episode in his life. They all fit together. Watch this. Verse 20, same chapter. Verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. So Samson gets angry. He's hot with anger and he goes home to his parents. Well, the father of that woman that he was going to marry... The object of this feast for these seven days, the one who enticed him to tell her the answer to the riddle, dad just says, well, you marry this guy. One of the 30 they brought into the party. Samson's gone. Dad gives away the wife. Chapter 15, verse 1. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Maybe, and I'm just speculating, in those days, you tore the goat in front of your soon-to-be wife. I don't know. Maybe there was going to be goat tearing. And he said, I'm going to go into my wife in the chamber. But her father wouldn't allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Now, just a sidebar. Does that sound absolutely crazy to you? The way that they're operating here, does that sound utterly despicable to you? It should. That is the normal modus operandi of the Philistine culture that Israel has completely accommodated to. This is what's being reflected in the life of God's people. This is what they've fallen asleep to. This is what God is hot with anger about. 
the news of what her father did didn't sit well with Samson. Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes and he took torches. He turned them tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines. He set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Read that like a human for a moment. How long does it take to catch 300 foxes? All right? Sounds funny. Sit back on it for a second. This is an extreme act of premeditated revenge. The time that it takes to catch 300 foxes, the time that it takes to pair them off two by two and tie torches between their tails, waiting until the time after which they would have gathered the harvest and stacked the grain, Samson premeditates this act of revenge so that he can inflict the most damage and mayhem. He completely wiped out their harvest for the year and their potential for the harvest in the coming years when he burns down the orchards. The trees suffer. That's this man, Samson. Well, that didn't sit well with the Philistines. You see this back and forth going on? Like you grow up, you hear different stories about Samson. You ever see how they all fit? The Philistines are not happy with Samson now, right? But watch this. Because of what Samson's done, because of his reputation, because of the outlandish nature of his revenge, which doesn't even seem possible for a single man to do, when the Philistines get mad at Samson, do you know who they take it out on? That dad and the woman he was supposed to marry. So when Samson burns down their harvest and burns down their vineyards, they look at it and go, well, I'm not sure we can really deal with this man, Samson. So you know what? Because you gave your daughter to that other guy and he got mad and did this, we're going to take it out on you. So watch, watch what happens. This is the people we're dealing with. Verse 6, the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Remember, they threatened her earlier. If you don't get the answer to the riddle so that we can solve Samson's riddle, we're going to burn you with your fire. Well, now because you got us the riddle and Samson acted in revenge after we found out the riddle and he got mad at us and burned down our stuff, we just burn you and your father with fire. Samson said, if this is what you do, I swear I'm going to be avenged on you. And after that, I'll quit. Do you really believe that? Do you really think this man has that kind of self-control? Samson struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And after he did this, he goes down and he stays in the cleft of the rock of Atom. And now we get our fourth episode in Samson's life. Samson and what is quite literally translated the Battle of Jawbone Hill. Verse 9, the Philistines came up. They encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we've come up to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. So you see how it's going back and forth? Now they're just done with this man after this last outburst. But 3,000, verse 11 says, 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? Do you hear what they're upset about? They have become so accustomed to life and Philistine oppression and everything that they experience in the life of the Philistines, Samson is causing a problem between Israel and the Philistines and they want him to stop. Everything you're doing is ruining what we've got. This is the picture of how assimilated and how far God's people have gone. They are mad at Samson because he's messing up the relationship that they have with the Philistines. The enmity is growing between Israel and the Philistines, and they want to put it to, put it to rest. And what's even worse, this is 3,000 of the tribe of Judah. 
If you were with us when the book started and we started the series, when they're going to go into the land that God had promised and they had to clear out the land that God had given them, it was the tribe of Judah that led the campaigns in the mountains, down to the valleys, down the seaside. It was the tribe of Judah that went up first and in obedience cleared the land that God had called them to clear. And now here we are with Samson and it's Judah that's going to try to get him to stop. And it's Judah, verse 12 says, that came down to bind Samson that we can give you to the hands of the Philistines. This is what's happening amongst God's people. Samson just asked them, promise not to kill me. And they promised not to kill him. So they bind him up to hand him over to the Philistines. And verse 14, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he put out his hand and he took it and with it he struck a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called, and you can translate that very literally, Jawbone Hill. Well, there's a problem there too, isn't it? My guess is that there wasn't a live donkey standing near Samson. That he didn't just yank the jawbone out of some live donkey that was standing there working next to him. The high likelihood is that there was a dead donkey. And Samson again, in defiance of his Nazarite vow, grabs the jawbone of a dead donkey and proceeds to kill all these men on Jawbone Hill. And it's here, on the backside of Jawbone Hill, that we find out Samson actually begins his work as a judge. He actually begins his work as a deliverer of Israel. Verse 18, he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and he said, you've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? For the first time in Samson's life, we get something here. For the first time in Samson's life, Samson has come up against something that he can't fix. Samson cannot fix the situation he finds himself in. He is thirsty. He just killed men with a jawbone of a donkey out in the heat. He's tired. If he doesn't get something to drink, he is going to die. He has found a profound level of weakness and dependence that he can't deal with. And he calls out to God. He recognizes in this moment his dependence. It's the first time we get note of that. And he calls out to God. And the spirit of God, God split open the hollow place that's at Lehi. Water came out of it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he was revived. Verse 20 says, he judged Israel in the days of Philistines for 20 years. Samson's judgeship began at a point of absolute profound dependence, of weakness, a situation he couldn't get himself out of. And for the next 20 years, he judges Israel. But here's the thing, we don't have any information about that. We don't actually know what his 20 years was like. We know what it was like leading up to it so we can kind of guess what it was like. But the story picks up in the beginning of chapter 16 towards the end of Samson's 20 years and we get a picture most likely of what the previous 20 years were like. Chapter 16, verse one, Samson goes to Gaza. It's the capital of Philistine territory. And when he gets there, he sees a prostitute. We are finding out now in this story, we are given a picture of the recklessness and the downward trajectory of sin and wickedness in the life of Samson. This is the capital of Philistine territory. It would have been the most dangerous and unintelligent place for Samson to go at this point in his life, but he doesn't care. 
because his confidence in himself has reached entirely new levels. Nothing, he thinks, can actually touch him. And when he gets there, he doesn't fall in love with a woman there. He finds himself in the house of a prostitute. The recklessness, the brazenness, the arrogance, the defiance, it's reached entirely new proportions. One writer actually says the brave man who could strangle a lion can't control himself now. He can break the fetters with which his enemies bind him, but he ends up the prisoner of his own appetites. His brazenness is off the charts. And so the Gazites, they hear he's there. They find out he's actually in town. So they set up a trap. They're going to ambush him. They want to kill him. They all lie in wait for him so that when he leaves the house, they can get him. They can seize him. They've got enough people there. But we find out in the story, look at this, verse 3, Samson laid where he was until midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and of the two posts. He pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron, 40 miles approximately from where he was. Have you ever seen the world's strongest man stuff on television? Have you ever seen them carry those big yokes that sit across their shoulders with the weights on them? They struggle with all their might to get 50 feet in a matter of seconds? 40 miles with the gates of the city on his back from the middle of Philistine territory. He doesn't think anybody can touch him. Then he meets Delilah. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we might bind him and humble him. See, here you go. Here's the other picture. You've always thought, big, strong, muscle man, gonna tear everything down. They are going to get her to seduce him and entice him to find out how he can do all this because when you look at him, you can't figure it out. They assume there's got to be some element of magic to this. Maybe he's got some kind of necklace or some kind of amulet or some kind of incantation that he says, how is this man able to do this? So what they do is they offer her, you see here in, the, in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 5, offer her 1,100 pieces of silver each. They're going to pay her. Go find out for us. So if you grew up hearing the story of Samson and Delilah, but you never read it, now you're going to get a piece of the motive. 1,100 pieces of silver to her from each of these men if she can find out what the source of his strength is. That is a payday to end all paydays for her. She will be set up for the rest of her life, most likely gain a level of prominence there where she is. She can call her shots for the rest of her life if this can work out. But Samson isn't innocent in the whole thing either. Three times he's going to lie to her about where his strength comes from. Three times she's going to try to get it from him and entice him to tell her. Three times he's going to lie. Do you know why? Because he's using her too. She's using him for a payday and a future. Samson's using her to satisfy his desires. They're each using the other to get what it is they want. Three, day, three times she tries. Three times he lies. And then in verse 16, she pressed him hard with her words day after day. She urged him. His soul, it says, was vexed to death. She wore him down. Verse 17, he told her all of his heart. He said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now she realized at that point, he told her the truth. 
Every other time he lied to her, she went and told the men who paid her. They showed up to get him. They jump on him when he wakes up and he frees himself. He knows what's going to happen. Here's the crazier thing. If you read it quite literally, she finds out, she realizes, he tells her the truth. She goes and tells these men that the source of the strength, they come. They're in the room. She gets Samson to fall asleep on her knees. She motions over for one of these men to come and cut his hair. They're right there. See, the reality of it is Samson did not think anything would happen if his hair got cut. Inside, Samson actually believed the source of his strength was within himself. At this point, nothing had ever happened to him. He had broken his vows his entire life. So brazen and self-confident had Samson become so utterly non-dependent on the grace of God to empower him in all these different moments in his life. Samson thinks he's the source of his own strength. So fine, cut my hair. The reality of it is you read when she wakes him up and tells him they're here to get him. Look at what he says in verse 20. I'll go out as every other time and shake myself free. But what Samson didn't know is that the Lord had left him. Samson had missed the dependence that was meant to mark him his entire life. Completely missed that every moment of power he had ever experienced in his life was due to nothing but the mercy of God. And so you find yourself in the seventh and last episode of his life, unable to shake himself free as he thought. The Philistines, verse 21, seized him and gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. He, he, he pushed the mill in the prison. Now look at verse 23. The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. There's a worship service going on to Dagon now. Kind of picture all these people getting together. Now they're offering worship to Dagon. Look at what it says. Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Now you're getting to see the bigger battle that's going on behind all of this. Now everyone is getting together, offering praise and offering worship to Dagon, believing that he is the one that has delivered them. God won't have it. In verse 25, when their hearts were merry, They said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison. He entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I might lean against them. And when the house was full of men and women, the lords of the Philistines were all there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained them. Do you see the picture of what's happening here? Celebrating, drinking, feasting, worshiping Dagon. Thousands of men and women looking on as Samson is down here, gouged out eyes, entertaining them, mocking him as this is going on. One writer said throughout the Bible, there's an extraordinarily ironic strand of thinking It's expressed most succinctly by the Apostle Paul on two occasions. In his first letter to a church in Corinth, he writes, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. That God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And toward the end of the second letter to the same church, Paul concludes that gladly will I rather boast of my infirmities and my reproaches and in need, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. This writer says that it's the substance of the final chapter in Samson's life. It begins with a strong man who's revealed to be utterly weak but it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. 
Samson's judgeship began when he recognized his dependence upon the Lord in that moment after Jawbone Hill. And here, in this moment before the thousands, paraded out in front of them to entertain them, Samson again realizes his utter weakness and dependence. And in verse 28, Samson calls out to the Lord. And he said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me this, this one last time that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson's come to terms with the fact that he's utterly just a man. He's come to terms with his weakness. He's come to terms with his dependence. He realizes after all, in some way, who he really is. And and we'll get into it more specifically next week, but you need to see this is where all true gospel transformation actually comes from. It's only when you and I recognize our utter unrighteousness before God that we're ever by faith able to receive the righteousness that God offers through Christ. It's only when we come to grips with our dependence and our need and our weakness that we're ever able to see his sufficiency through his son. So Samson's there exposed as weak, utterly dependent, but now in his weakness, by the grace of God, he'll be stronger than he ever was before. Verse 29 says, Samson grasped the two pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his hand on the right and his hand on the left. And you can begin to see a picture handed over to Gentile oppressors, rejected and mocked, stretched out between two pillars. His greatest moment of weakness as a man, God is gonna turn into the greatest moment of victory he'd ever experienced. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all of his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. Samson began to deliver Israel by dying for them. Ed Clowney said that God had shown throughout this entire book that he could deliver Israel with an army of willing volunteers. He had also shown that he could save with as few as 300. But when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, the Lord showed he had no need for 300. He can deliver his people by one. And in the end of Samson's life, the echoes of God's faithfulness begin to resound and the picture of God's ultimate faithfulness to his people begins to come clear, handed over to Gentile oppressors, mocked, rejected, arms stretched out across a tree. The darkest day in the history of mankind, the greatest moment of weakness in the life of the man Jesus from Nazareth, God used to become his greatest day of decisive victory for his people. God means for you and I to hear in the story of Samson, the story of his faithfulness to his promise and his faithfulness to his people. In the beginning of the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord told them that I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I had promised to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my promise, my covenant with you. Even in their sin, even in their rejection of God, even in Samson's apparent dismissal of God's calling on his life, God never broke his word to his people. God's faithfulness to his promise to his people never changed, it never wavered, it never faded. So faithful to his promises to his people, God not only fulfills them in spite of their sin, but God actually works through their sin to use their sinfulness and the wickedness we even see in this man, Samson, for the good of his people and ultimately the glory of God. See, this story about Samson It puts on display for us, first and foremost, God's gracious providence that's always at work. 
God's gracious providence and faithfulness to his promise and to his people that works with and even through human sin and wickedness to accomplish all of God's good and glorious purposes. It's the same faithfulness that God expressed there to his people in the life of Samson and that cycle that God will ultimately express to his people and to you and I through the death of his son on a cross. That's what Peter declares to a Gentile and Jewish audience in Acts chapter 2. After Jesus is crucified, Peter stands up and says, this Jesus of Nazareth was attested, was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did to, amongst you through him, just as you know. And though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan of foreknowledge, you lawless people, he used you to nail him to a cross and kill him. God used the sin of lawless men to put Jesus to death and the death and resurrection of Jesus, he redeems sinful man from their wicked choices. It's the faithfulness of God to his promise and to his people, even when his people aren't faithful to him. It's the faithfulness of God to his promise. Samson, Samson was made weak because of his sin. But in the fulfillment of God's promise, Jesus becomes weak of his own voluntary choice that through his death in our place for our sin on the cross, he would set us free from the sin that binds each and every single one of us. Friends, there's no better news than that. There's no better news than that because the reality of it is each and every single one of us is more like Samson than we really want to admit. We're all driven by our impulses. We're all more controlled by our emotions and, and our compromise and our pride and our self-consumption than we want to admit. Samson became weak because of that sin, but Jesus came and voluntarily became weak on the cross and our sin was placed on him. And he died in your place for your sin. God's faithfulness to his promise. His faithfulness to his people. He didn't wait for you and I to fix ourselves. He didn't wait for you and I to come up with some grand plan to improve ourselves to the point where we deserve the death of his son in our place for our sin. No, Paul said, while you were yet sinners, the one true strong man became weak. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The greatest expression of the faithfulness of God to his promise and to his people. When the penny continues to drop on that, today when the penny begins to drop in your heart regarding the faithfulness of God to his promise and the faithfulness of God extended to you through his son, when it drops today, tomorrow, the day after that, God in his grace works in you a confidence in him that begins to free you from the very things that seek to make you so weak. Confidence in him begins to grow. How do you respond 
how do you respond to a God who remains so faithful to his promise and remains so faithful to his people even when they're not able to remain faithful to him? Like, how do you respond to a God of faithfulness like this who catches you up into his story that he is carrying along so faithful to his glory and so faithful to his promise that he works in spite of your unfaithfulness and even through it to see his name upheld, his purposes upheld, and your ultimate good accomplished? How do you even begin to respond to a God of faithfulness like that? Well, you do it through worship. You do it through worship. This morning, we get the privilege of responding to this one true, almighty, gracious, and faithful God together as his people. As we remember the sacrifice of his son in our place for our sin, and we remember Jesus taking on the form of man, becoming as a servant, weak in our place for our sins on the cross, our sins placed upon him, his death in our place, the death we deserve to die for our sins, he dies in our place and God raises him from the dead so that by the grace of God through faith in him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. How do you respond to the faithfulness of God to his promise and to his people? You do it through worship. This morning, we get the privilege of responding to him together as his people, and so I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, the musicians will begin to play, and for all of those who have tasted of the glorious grace of God through faith in Christ, we get the chance to respond together by receiving communion. And as we do that, we'll sing. We'll use the mouths he's given us, the bodies he's given us, the voices he's given us to make much of his grace, to make much of his faithfulness, and then we'll be sent out from here as his people to the place where he's called us. So, let me, let me pray for us and then we're going to respond. We're going to worship. And Father, we thank you that even in stories of, of men like Samson, where it's so easy to see ourselves and to see our sin, to see our unfaithfulness, Lord, you put on display for us in this your faithfulness to your word and to your people. God, when our unfaithfulness seems so clear, when all we can see sometimes is our own unfaithfulness to you, Lord, help us by your spirit to see above and beyond it all your faithfulness to us. When we want to be driven by our emotions of how we feel, we want to judge our relationship with you based on how we feel because of what we've done, Lord, help us to see first and foremost your faithfulness to your promise and your faithfulness to us. Lord, let us celebrate. Let us celebrate who you are and who you continue to be for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, that he would be honored, that he would be glorified in us and through us, and we would be overjoyed. Amen.